Hello and welcome to the AMBOSS podcast, Beyond the Textbook. Every two weeks, experts from AMBOSS, the medical education platform, interview medical students and healthcare professionals to showcase international perspectives on everything in medical school and beyond the textbook. I'm your host, Dr. Tanner Schrank, with my co-host, Sophie Neal. Hi, everyone. Really, really nice to be back with you. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Alex Youssef and Dr. Shad Faraz, co-founders of Sky Therapeutics. And we're going to begin, actually, with your Amboss QBank question of the day. So Tana's going to throw that in. And then we're going to interview our guests and we'll finish up with the answer to our question, a book recommendation for our listeners and a medical fun fact. Here's your Amboss QBank question of the day. A nine-year-old boy is brought to the physician by his mother because of poor performance in school for the last year. He has difficulty sitting still at his desk, does not follow the teacher's instructions, and frequently blurts out answers in class. He often gets sent outside the classroom for failing to work quietly. At hockey practice, he does not wait his turn and has difficulty listening to his coach's instructions. His mother reports that he is easily distracted when she speaks with him and that he often forgets his books at home. Physical exam shows no abnormalities. Which of the following is the most appropriate pharmacotherapy? A. Atomoxetine B. Suvaroxant C. Buspirone D. Risperidone E. Fluoxetine or F. Varenicline We'll get the answer to that at the end of the show. Now I'll hand it back to Sophie to start our interview. Dr. Alex Youssef and Dr. Shad Faraz are trailblazers in the world of healthcare, combining their expertise in medicine and business to co-found Sky Therapeutics. Together, they're transforming the healthcare landscape through innovation and collaboration. And according to the Harvard Business School, they're building the first discovery and developmental-oriented digital therapeutics company using an AI-enabled platform that will churn out highly potent and personalized therapies at a fraction of the current cost and time. Our guests are also the hosts of the podcast Physicians Off the Beaten Path, which is super cool. And they've interviewed dozens of physician investors, entrepreneurs, scientists, and plenty more to explore what else medical professionals can do. In today's episode, they're going to be sharing their journey and provide valuable insights for medical students and professionals interested in the intersection of medicine, business, and innovation. So to start, can you maybe both tell us a little bit about your backgrounds and what led you to co-found Sky Therapeutics? Sure. Thank you so much for having us, Tanner. And so it's a pleasure to be here. I can start us off. I think my story of growing up in Bangladesh to becoming a doctor in the U.S. and then eventually an entrepreneur is really a story of my curiosity winning out over my fears. And starting from the very, very beginning, I grew up in Bangladesh for the first 13 years of my life, moved to Canada with my parents, did middle school, high school in Canada, moved to the U.S. where I did college, medical school and residency. And from the outside, at least until now, it seems, especially the schooling part, to be fairly linear. And it was. But underneath the surface, I was sort of bursting with this curiosity to understand the world beyond what I was being taught in medical school. And I was constantly frustrated, actually, in medical school because I wasn't taught about, you know, healthcare policy or how the healthcare system actually worked. But incidentally, my surgical program was one of the few programs in the country that made you take time off during your residency to go do research. And I knew I'd done research in the past. I didn't want to do that and decided to uh, go to business school. And luckily, it was at a Harvard Business School where not only did I have the time, but also where I was able to let sort of my curiosity take over. 
And so I made the most of it. You know, I was interested in management consulting. I did that for a summer. I was interested in venture capital. I did that for a semester. But ultimately, the aspirational goal for people at HBS is to create something that's your own and to have that ultimate level of responsibility and autonomy. And Sky Therapeutics sort of provided that. Great. Thank you, Shed. How about you, Alex? Hey, thank you, Tyler. So really excited to be on the podcast today. So I'm half student, half Ukrainian. I was born in Ukraine. I lived there for five years. Then I moved to Syria, uh, where I did medical school and medical residency for a year and a half on the front lines during the Civil War. But during medical school itself, I think I was disillusioned by, you know, the ability to use your clinical uh, skills to make a large scale change. Part of that was, of course, you know, the civil war started in Syria and it was very hard to kind of change the reality of practice. And so a lot of my interest during medical school shifted towards, you know, building capacity for medical research. And we ended up establishing a national organization to kind of support research in the country. After that, I was, I was lucky to get a scholarship to the UK. So I ended up studying between the UK and the US. I did computer science and bioengineering and eventually did my MBA at Harvard Business School. And I think Chad and I got very interested in this idea of using software for therapeutic purposes. So I did my PhD specifically focused on clinical machine learning. And so we eventually ended up using that to start Sky Therapeutics. Wow, that's so great. Thank you both. It's really interesting to hear your, like you said, Shed, not exactly linear pathways to come here. And it's so cool to hear your passion for innovating and for medicine. So what exactly is the mission of Sky Therapeutics? Generally in Sky, we're focused on creating video games that can be used for therapeutic purposes. So the products are video games, but the gameplay itself activates certain neural circuitry in the brain and achieves a therapeutic purpose through that. So, you know, in many diseases, the disease manifestations, the symptoms are driven by deficiency and certain neural circuitry in the brain. And so essentially the products that Sky are developing is therapeutic games that can specifically target, for example, you know, major depressive disorder or schizophrenia, ADHD or autism. So our first therapeutic game focuses on ADHD, targets working memory and central executive components, but also really kind of the vision for Sky is to use this therapeutic modality for a variety of different diseases. Wow, that's so exciting. Yeah, I'm honestly absolutely blown away. I have never heard of anything like that before. I think that's absolutely incredible. What, what a brilliant idea. And I'm sure it's come with, you know, really high points and, and really low points as well, you know, trying to tease it all out and get it to the point you want to. So what are the challenges that you found when you've been developing everything and, and how have you overcome them? Thank you, Sophie. Uh, this is a, a great question. So there's numerous challenges that are uniquely specific to digital therapeutics. I think there's this notion of psychological and emotional volatility that happens when you do a startup, right? So when you're doing a startup, more often than not, it's novel in some way. So as an entrepreneur, you look at the world and see something wrong with it to simplify you imagine a solution and then you try to create and implement that solution. That process, if successful, can take anywhere from a few years, if you're lucky, to sometimes decades. But along the way, you experience immense amounts and levels of volatility. And there's days where you have seven meetings with stakeholders and everyone just gets what you're doing. They understand the vision. They understand the data. They're ready to jump on and help, right? Those days are a rush and nothing beats those days. 
So for every day like that, there's maybe two, three, sometimes four days where people just do not get what you're doing. You'll hear stuff ranging from, wait, you gave up being a surgeon to make video games? Or I don't believe in what you're doing. This is bad for society. Or your data sounds too good to be true. Yes, like, you know, sometimes your company's strengths, like for us, it's data, can actually be used against you. And so those days can be emotionally draining because you feel sometimes lost or if you're not careful, you can start to have doubts. And that spiral, which can happen to founders, is never pretty. So I think it's mission critical to be able to ground yourself and manage that volatility. And so ideally, you're not swaying from high highs to low lows every few days because that's neither healthy nor productive. And there's many ways to manage that volatility. You can go back to the fundamentals. So what research, insights, hypothesis made you start the company? Do those still hold true? If so, you continue in the face of pushback. If not, you adapt and pivot. Another way to manage volatility, and I personally think the most important way, at least for me, is to lean on your circle of support. They can help ground you. They can be your family members, your friends, your mentor, your co-founder, or you know other people working at the startup. I think having someone to lean on during your entrepreneurial journey, which can sometimes feel very lonely, and it's kind of counterintuitive because from the outside, it seems like you're doing something exciting and sexy, but internally you might be sort of struggling with all of that volatility that's going on as you're trying to trailblaze. Great answer. Yeah. I think that hits the nail on the head, right? It's about balancing. Yeah, I think that's really, really good advice as well. Like if you're going through any type of business, right? You start in something app, you're going to have highs and lows in lots of different ways. And I think it was more useful actually to talk about how you deal with the day-to-day rather than, you know, this is one challenge and this is how we overcame it because there's going to be multiple challenges every single day. And like you said, it could be anything from a few years to a decade. So you need to kind of settle in and buckle up and get yourself ready to go. Absolutely. And you mentioned giving up being a surgeon to start a video game company, sort of. How do you deal with this idea that some other people might bring up? Like, you were trained to be a doctor, right? How do you feel about not being in the clinic anymore? Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you, Tanner. This is one of the more common questions, you know, every day in society that you'll get when you tell people I used to be a doctor and, and now I have my own startup or, or whatever. For me, I would say personally, I'm, I'm happier than ever. You know, the whole sunk cost fallacy where people sort of justify doing what they've always done because they've already invested so much time and effort into it. I've actively tried, and this was hard, but I've actively tried to stray away from that. You know, a lot of people in medicine spend so long training and are always told about delayed gratification, you know, like it'll get better, it'll get better, keep going, there's light at the end of the tunnel, that they wouldn't dream of leaving near the middle or end of their training. But during business school, I had a fork in the road, right? When I was trying to make a decision, do I go back to clinical medicine? Do I go back to residency and finish it off? Or do I continue down the business path? my North Star became happiness. A little bit selfish, but it became sort of my own happiness. I sort of jotted down the things that I valued the most of the time, things like autonomy, things like, you know, new experiences, breadth of impact on society rather than depth of impact on an individual, work-life flexibility, and and a few number of things. And I found that the business route, broadly speaking, offered me more of what I wanted than the clinical medicine route. And, And look, it wasn't easy, right? I'm simplifying about a year of struggle internally to to sort of tell you that. And I think, you know, I spent a year speaking with family members, colleagues, mentors, friends. And in fact, I think I overdid the process a little bit. I sort of knew the answer in, in retrospect, but went on the speaking tour to try to find some validation. But this is an area where I'm not overly prescriptive. It depends on your personal life factors, your risk tolerance, what you value, what you enjoy. So do you enjoy what you're currently doing? 
Do you have school debt? What does your partner think? What non-clinical interests do you have? Are those interests amenable to part-time work or do they require full-time dedication? Whether or not you should continue doing clinical medicine, something else or both, really depends on the answers to some of those questions. So for example, if clinical medicine feels like you're calling and you're absolutely in love with what you're doing and you feel fulfilled, congratulations, you've hit the life lottery. You should keep doing what you're doing. But if you are someone who feels that they are just kind of going through the motions while working in the hospital or the clinic, you can't quite remember why you entered clinical medicine in the first place, and you have a side hustle, let's say, and you work on that you know, a few hours a week, and you're financially secure, maybe that side hustle becomes a bigger and bigger and bigger part of your life until one day it's your central focus, right? Only you can answer that question. And anyone else who says, like, this is what you should do after like a 20-minute conversation with you, probably not giving you the best advice. But for me personally, based on my sort of life factors and professional factors and the stuff that I was sort of, you know, focusing and indexing on, I'm I'm happy with the decision that I've made. Yeah, I think it's really important. You said, you know, I I chose what makes me happy. And you said, you know, selfishly. I don't think that's selfish at all. And at the end of the day, if you're not happy, eventually you won't be able to function. As you said before, you know, it's it's not something that's sustainable. So if you're happy, if you're able to move forward, then you can help people. If you're not happy, that's not going to work. So I think you've done absolutely the right thing. I'm going to take a slightly different turn with my next question, but I'm really intrigued because we're really seeing, you know, a huge rapid advancement of technology in healthcare and, and in general, I'd say in the world at the moment with AI. But, you know, what are your thoughts on striking the, the right balance between human touch and technology in patient care? It's a great question. We need to ensure that MDs are able to use new technology effectively and safely. Those two components are very important because if we do not adopt new technologies to streamline clinical care, you could argue that we are not achieving the full therapeutic and clinical potential of taking care of patients. And the flip side of that is if new technologies are adopted in an uncontrolled way, that could lead to unintended harm. And so basically the way I think about this is we need to have a controlled and efficient way of adopting these technologies that would include early tests of the technologies to understand the clinical potential for integration, but to understand the unintended consequences that from integration and therefore mitigate those consequences in the way we adopt technologies. It's only by actually integrating the technology and doing controlled tests that you can start to observe some of the risks of adoption of that technology. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, I completely agree with that, you know, being guided by certain principles and then sort of iterating in real time as you implement new technology and then mitigating for the downside, you know, makes a lot of sense. I think we need to come up with some sort of guidelines of how humans and technology can coexist in healthcare. So many used to think in the past that it was knowledge that separates humans from machines, but with generative AI technologies like ChatGPT, you know, they've taken the boards and have actually passed and they'll only continue to get better, right? So perhaps it isn't always knowledge that separates us from machines, but rather the ability to process you know, competing information and make trade-offs and judgments, or perhaps it's empathy, or perhaps it's the ability to listen. So if humans are freed up to do what we do best, I think in general, society will be better off for it. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. Just sort of thinking, actually, where can technology help us more? Where should we still keep that sort of human touch? That's, that's a really great answer. 
I love that. And both of you touched on this about keeping the human in the loop for these quickly evolving technologies, especially AI, because we know there are built-in biases and it's up to the clinician to keep that in mind and to not harm the patient by using these technologies. So that's really key, I think. Is there any like specific advice for medical students and, and young physicians who might be interested in pursuing entrepreneurial ventures and the healthcare industry that you might want to offer them? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Sophie, for that question. And this is another one of the questions where we can probably talk for hours, but I'll sort of narrow down on on some of the high yield awards. I think for first time founders, it's very important to spend time selecting who you sort of surround yourself with. I think the second piece of advice I would give to budding entrepreneurs is to be realistic. So there's many different factors that lead to success. Generically, it's hard work, luck, macroeconomic factors, many, many more, right? Some of which are within your control, some of which are not within your control. But a big factor is hard work. And hard work is a function of the time and effort that you're putting into something. So some things in business can be done well while having a part-time or half-time clinical career, but building a large company from scratch is probably not one of them. So I think understanding that the world is about trade-offs and knowing what those trade-offs are and what trade-offs you're willing to make is part of that you know, entrepreneurial journey. That's really, really great advice. I feel like, you know, the first bit of advice when you really listen to it is actually something quite simple, but also very complicated at the same time. You know, the sort of advice that maybe somebody wouldn't think of straight away. Just one last question, which is, if you could give our listeners any advice beyond the textbook, what would you say? Yeah, no, thank you so much, Sophie and Tanner, for having us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really enjoy uh, your podcast and what you guys are doing. I think one thing that I would say is try to be as true to yourself as you can be. I think it's not always possible because life sometimes gets in the way. But I think sitting down and ask yourself, what is important to me currently? Am I getting those things out of my current situation? Why or why not? I think that first step is self-awareness. And you may be surprised by what you learn. That's super cool. Yeah. Thank you very, very much, Shad. Is, is there anything you wanted to add, Alex? Any advice that you have? Yeah. So I'd add there that, you know, there's a lot of value to doing untraditional things. So, you know, if you're a medical student and you're interested in doing entrepreneurship or doing whatever policy or humanitarian work, whatever is your interest, I think there's a value and actively speaking with individuals who are on that path and trying to understand what they enjoy, how did they get the opportunity and what that opportunity provides them in terms of next steps and optionality. And so having a broad range of conversations is very helpful. It usually helps you see kind of things from perspectives that you haven't necessarily thought about. I think that's really, really excellent advice. You know, always good to surround yourself with like-minded people so you can sort of grow your opinions, but also different-minded people as well so that you get, as you said, that perspective. That's super key. Thank you very, very much both for, for sharing all of your incredible expertise and your advice has been such an interesting listen. And we're wishing you and Sky Therapeutics all of the continued success in your mission to improve the future of healthcare. And we can't wait to see where you get. We hope it goes super, super well. And, and from the sound of it, it's definitely going to. Thank you very much for having Thank us. You. Really appreciate it. So thanks so much for listening. As promised at the beginning, here is your book recommendation. So this week we are recommending The Patient Will See You Now by Eric Topol from 2014. This book explores the transformative power of digital healthcare and how cutting edge technology is revolutionizing the way we approach medicine.
And now let's get back to that Amboss Question Bank question of the day. The key info for this question is poor performance in school for the last year, difficulty sitting still, and being easily distracted. The attending tip for this question says these findings meet diagnostic criteria for ADHD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Both stimulants and non-stimulants are approved to treat this condition. So with this in mind, you should have selected answer A. Atomoxetine is a non-stimulant drug for treating ADHD and is prescribed for patients who cannot tolerate stimulants, such as methylphenidate. Atomoxetine carries a black box warning for increased suicidal ideation in children and adolescents, so treatment must be monitored closely. Other non-stimulant drugs approved for the treatment of ADHD include clonidine and guanfacine. To read more about ADHD and its pharmacotherapy, check out this AMBOSS question in the AMBOSS question bank and read more on the AMBOSS platform with the links in the description below. And finally, your medical fun fact. On the topic of innovation in healthcare, did you know that insulin was discovered only 100 years ago? Frederick Grant Banting and John James Richard McLeod received the 1923 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for the discovery of insulin. And that's a wrap for today's episode of the AMBOSS podcast beyond the textbook. Thank you all so much for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this conversation. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast for more insightful episodes covering everything in healthcare and medical education. I'm Dr. Tanner Schrank. And I'm Sophie Neal, and this has been Amboss Beyond the Textbook. The links in the description can give you a more in-depth understanding of these concepts. If you like this episode, please give us a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. You can check out the Amboss platform for your medical studies and sign up for a free five-day trial at amboss.com.